What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You don't just live in your home. You live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is New York Times reporter Joe Coscarelli. who have got a great new book, Rap Capital, an Atlanta story. Joe, why the book? What inspired you? You know, Bob, this book really came out of my reporting at the Times, right? I'm, a, I'm the music reporter here in the culture section. Uh, I started in late 2014, you know, the sort of dawn really of the streaming era right and and one of the stories i kept coming back to uh you know in my time as the beat reporter was rap in atlanta right i did an early story on uh artist by the name of lil yachty um that was actually a men's style cover uh because he he was you know sort of moving through the fashion and influencer world at the beginning even more so than music um i did an early story uh, when migos hit number one with bad and bougie um, their album Culture. I profiled them on that album. Uh, I around the same time, you know, I, I did a story on this label, Quality Control, uh, down there. That was, you know, both Yachty and, and Migos came from that label, and they were sort of the homegrown talent incubators of the moment in Atlanta. And you know, just over and over again, you would see uh, as streaming sort of, you know, knocked down these walls uh, the, the, for what kind of music people really wanted to hear, right? Billboard charts were changing as a result of, of YouTube and, and Spotify and then Apple Music. Uh, and always bubbling to the top were these sort of, you know, very raw Southern rap uh, albums and songs. And this is something I grew up on as well. This is the kind of music I listened to when I was younger, growing up in the South. Um, and so the combination of that with my Times reporting, I was just coming into contact with all of these characters, uh, these labels, these sounds, and and it was just over and over again. And you know, I had a I had an agent and and a book editor. Uh, we we can get into that. He he published Gucci Mane's autobiography. Um, 
the the editor who ended up acquiring this book. And you know, they kept asking me what kind of book I wanted to write. Rap music was something that was obviously in the conversation, but I never really found the right story. And after a handful of these Atlanta stories, you know, they both came to me and they said, "This, like, this is this is the book." Okay, so actually. They were looking, unlike the usual story where an author is pushing a book, you already had a relationship and it was their idea that this should be the book. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, I have been thinking, you know, is a book the next step in my career? Uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I started at the Times in, in 2014. So now it's been almost eight years. Uh, this was somewhere in the middle. This, this book was a, a really long reporting process. Um, but, you know, they... They saw a book in me before I saw a book in me, I think. Um, and I, it took some convincing, honestly. Like, I wasn't sure what the story was, and I didn't want to just retread the reporting I had already done. Um, and I didn't want to just write a music book, right? I didn't just want to write an unauthorized biography of, of an artist, um, which I think, you know, there, there's a place for those. But that's, you know, the music bookshelves in, in, in any store uh, are sort of overrun with that sort of, uh, run of the mill, like cradle to grave story. And so, you know, I, I, I wanted to do something different. Um, I wanted to do a lot of reporting. That's what I, what I really like to do. Um, and I wanted to track a story in real time. So I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of what ended up becoming the book was because I wanted to, to take what I had done in the times and then sort of spin it into something that I could be along for, right? I wanted to be along for the ride. And, and I think that's a through line that runs uh, through a lot of the reporting I do at the Times. I like to find people at the beginning of their career and, and see where it goes, whether it's, you know, to the top of the charts or it's sort of founders. Like, I think both can be equally interesting. Now, there's a lot of reporting on the hip-hop scene. And when you wrote your first articles about Lil Yachty and quality control, was there so much information in the pipeline that you were up to speed or did this require reporting and deep reporting by yourself? You know, there's a lot of really good background, right? Like the, the rap reporting throughout the nineties and early two thousands, uh, it is invaluable. Um, you know, thinking of the village voice, thinking of double XL later on the fader, uh, you know, Ton of ton of websites really covering regional scenes, um, but there's something about hip hop media I think that's always been very ephemeral, um, and and this goes for the music as well, right? There are hundreds, thousands of mixtapes that are sort of lost to time because they exist in this liminal space between legality and illegality, um, and I think a lot of hip hop media has has followed that path, you know, given how popular this music is, um, how important these artists are how interesting their their biographies and their stories are. There's like sort of a real dearth of serious reporting on these subjects. So you could piece stuff together here and there. You know, YouTube, an invaluable resource, I think, uh, when it comes to comes to rap music. Um, and so, you know, you could, you, you could sort of piece things together, um, but there wasn't a ton of extremely in-depth, extremely rigorous journalism on these subjects. Um, you know, there are a handful of books as I started the research process. Um, but a lot of these guys also become famous really quickly, right? So when I'm profiling Lil Yachty in 2015 or 2016, w whatever it was, uh, you know, he, 
he had been just a normal college kid, right? Like a few months prior. So, you know, he had, he had done a few quick hits here and there, but the ability to spend a lot of time with these people and put a lot of resources into these stories and not just do a 15 minute phoner or, you know, a 20 minute radio station interview, like that's, that's the benefit that comes, I think, with being somewhere like the New York times where we're going to, you know, we're going to put serious resources, serious time and energy, uh, in, into these stories that, you know, I think especially us in the culture section and the music section are just as important as anything else the paper covers. Um, and we're going to bring that level of, of rigor to it. I hope. Okay. I found out about Lil Yachty and quality control and coach K from Steve Barnett, who ran Capitol records till recently. I was completely out of the loop. How did Lil Yachty start to fly on your radar? When was it a story and how did you report the story? So Yadi was a Yadi's a funny one because he's a sort of anomaly even within the label, right? Yadi grew up uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta. His dad, uh, Shannon, was a, a famous hip hop photographer in the scene. You know, photographed Outkast, photographed Pastor Troy. Uh, you know, a lot a lot of these sort of early '90s figures, Jermaine Dupri. He was in the mix um, and and was was known among some of these people, including Coach K, which is a, a story I tell in the in, in in the book and and in the piece. Uh, Coach K knew Yadi's father, but didn't know that Yadi was his son. So Yadi came up independently on SoundCloud. Right, this was really the beginning of of artists bubbling up on SoundCloud. Lo-fi music, uh, totally self recorded, self released. Um, you know, he was he was he was in college. He didn't like it. He he liked dressing colorfully. He liked you know being in the mix, fashion wise. He knew some Instagram influencers, but he didn't really consider himself a musician. But he started making these these you know sort of silly. People were referring to them at the time as bubblegum trap. Right? They sounded a bit like nursery rhymes. There's a lot of auto tune. You know, they're pretty. The, the jokes and the, the lyrics can be a little juvenile. Um, and, and he was calling himself the king of the teens, right? So this was really bubbling up uh, on SoundCloud, on Vine. You know, he, one, of his, one of his songs, uh, I believe, called One Night, uh, soundtracked like an early viral video um, around this time. And, and, and our, it was still pretty novel, right, for artists to take off this way. You know, we'd seen it. Uh, Soldier Boy was many years prior to that. You know, they're... they're there are a ton of examples in between of dance crazes or, or viral artists and whatnot. Um, but, it, but them being signed to major labels and turning into big stars, like that was pretty new. Right. So, and it, and then it's funny when a kid like that, who's totally of the new generation links up with somebody like coach K, right. Who coach K has these deep, deep, deep roots in the Atlanta rap scene in the Atlanta music industry. He managed pastor Troy. He managed, Gucci man, he managed young Jeezy, you know, he's, he's as responsible as anyone for the the sort of explosion of trap music and mixtapes in the early to mid two thousands. Um, so you have a guy like that who's sort of keeping his ear to the streets and finds out about this weird kid with the, you know, red braids and the, and the, the beads and calling himself the king of the teens coach told me this story when I first met him that he was you know, he, he would have, he would have people over, right. He would, he would host a, a dinner party where he would invite young people from sort of all walks of life around Atlanta, DJs, you know, street kids, kids, kids doing illegal business in the street, uh, A&Rs, you know, he would, he would just bring together this sort of network and they would play each other music. And he said, you know, he heard, he heard these little Yachty songs and he 
was like he, his interest was piqued, but then he saw a picture of him, right? And he had such a unique style, and he was like that. Like I need to meet that kid. Um, so he started he started pursuing him, and it turned out not only did he go way back with Yadi's father, but he also went to school at a small HBCU with his mother. Um, and not only that, but he had a message in his, I think maybe his Facebook, his Facebook inbox, um, from little Yachty himself who said, you know, I'm going to blow up. I just need your help. Um, so it's these sort of like small world coincidences and overlaps in networks and stuff that I think make Atlanta such an interesting, interesting story. And that I wanted to tease out in the book. And I had just started sort of picking them up along the way as I was doing these one-off newspaper stories. And then I realized how interconnected everything was through the years, through the generations, through the different sounds. There's always somebody who was involved in the previous thing. Um, And so I wanted to really tell that story. Okay. When you talk about little Yachty in the book, and he ultimately has success in the traditional record chart, you whip out this amazing statistic of double-digit millions that he made within a year or 18 months. Now, and you said it was not primarily recordings. So could you talk about how much money that was and how he made that money for those who were out of the loop? Yeah, so Yadi, I'd have to look up the exact the exact uh, the figure. You might have it in front of you. Um, but one of the things that was amazing about him was that coach right away, I think saw him as a, as a brand, right? They, they, they wanted him to be Will Smith. They wanted him to be, uh, you know, the fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I think I have it here. They said he made $13 million in 16 months. Right. And even from the first time I met Yachty, uh, we did an interview at like a little Caribbean restaurant in Brooklyn after going shopping um, you know, coach's friend owned it and they shut down the place so we could sit quietly. And, you know, he was like a surly teenager. He didn't really want to be talking to me, uh, at that point. Um, but he knew that he wanted to be famous, right? He wanted to go viral. He didn't even know he wanted to make music that that part was a sort of side journey for him. Um, but he also realized the importance of being a brand, right? He was, he was very young at that time. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He was, he was very adamant that, you know, he wanted his career to last as long as possible. And, and this was something coach instilled in him, right? I think he had that instinct already as a child of the internet, but then, you know, coach told him brands last longer than songs. He said, you know, I tell every artist we sign them. I'm real with them. He said, you have an expiration date on you as an artist. Let's turn you into a brand. Right. And so even when Yachty's debut album on Capitol sort of, you know, didn't have a huge first week, didn't have a smash single. He had a lot of success as, you know, as a guest star. He had a lot of success uh, in in bits and pieces uh, musically. But what he really got good at was he was in a Target commercial. He was in a Sprite commercial. He you know, partnered with this brand, that brand, you can go to the grocery store now and find a little Yachty frozen pizza. You know, he, he had a, he had a cereal, he had a nail polish line and this was all happening super quickly. Uh, he's in a, you know, he's in a made for made for TV movie, uh, sequel of a, you know, famous, famous hip hop film, how high, uh, you know, they, they just immediately saw 
that what brands wanted and what corporations wanted is access to cool, right? And what's cooler than rap music? Uh, and Yachty was a particularly colorful figure. Um, and, and they all saw this vision very clearly. Um, and, and it just took off. And still, you know, you, you probably see more Yachty commercials than you hear Yachty songs, but that was all by design. Okay, so if we talk about today, you know, insiders would think that little Yachty is faded. But there's mind share in the public, and there's also monetary uh, considerations. As a student of the game, where, where's Lil Yachty at, and what is his future as a career now? You know, Yachty's had such an unpredictable career. He did this very amazing thing, which is, you know, when people were sick of his music and they, you know, would make fun of his album for flopping or say he couldn't rap or whatever, you know, oh, he's only in commercials. He really buckled down and he got really good at rapping. And not only that, but he sort of located what the next big rap scene was going to be. Um, he found these guys in Michigan, you know, in Flint and Detroit that were really doing a, a, uh, a style that comes a little bit from the Bay Area, a little bit from the Midwest, um, you know, rapping really quickly, really comedically, really sharp, really funny guys um, rapping, uh, you know, people call it scam rap. You know, they're they're rapping often about uh, about, you know, clothes and, and material gains, but specifically through, you know, fraud and financial crime. And and and, you know, it was just this this extremely witty new sound and subject matter and he really embedded with these guys he like you know he he would spend a ton of time there he made he made an album called uh you know uh michigan boat boy which was you know which was him sort of using his celebrity to put on all of these regional artists from a totally different place um and along the way like he got really good at rapping and he just kept going and you know he put out some mixtapes that sort of uh, reestablishes credibility. He, you know, he found other artists in other regional scenes. Uh, you know, some Los Angeles rappers he fell in with, um, some New York guys. He, he just has proven himself to be like a real chameleon um, and just a really savvy operator. And I think like people like hanging around him and they like uh, seeing him sort of stretch his talents in new ways. Um, and I think he's had a lot more longevity because of that than anybody ever imagined, not to mention, you know, as discussed, made a lot of money along the way on the corporate side of things. So I think because he was making money from brand deals, he could sort of do whatever he wanted musically. Um, and and I think that's benefited him in the long run. Okay. You said you're from the South. Where are you from? So I grew up uh, all around Florida. Um, I went to high school in Orlando, Florida, uh, but I lived all over the state. Uh, my family moved around a lot. And when I moved to New York uh, at 18, my family moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so my sister went to high school there. I spent a lot of time there uh, as my as 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 my little sister was going through school and as I was uh, as I was doing college. Um, so I was back and forth between the north and the south for the last 15 years. But the my sort of you know my core adolescence was in Central Florida. Okay, so you and the publisher have this idea. How do you then approach the players and what do you say? And do they embrace you or are they, are they, you know, weary at first? You know, I think I had proven myself um, at the New York Times and in the stories that I was doing along the way. I think, you know, when, 
when people see themselves reflected accurately in a platform like the New York Times, especially in genres that you don't think of as traditionally at home in a prestige media place. You know, I was I was taking real care to say this is the most important music in the world. You know, I'm a relatively young person for this building at this time and in this beat. Um, and I want to accurately cover, you know, what's going on among the youth, which tend to drive, you know, music and culture trends uh, for all of time. Um, so I think, you know, there there comes some credibility with that. Um, and yeah, I had done I had done the work and I had, you know, built the built the source relationships with a lot of these people. Um you know, little baby, who's another big character in the book. Uh, you know, I've, I've followed him on this on this journey, and I, I I knew that I wanted him to to be a character in the book because, as I said, I sort of found him at the right moment. Right, I I did one of his first big major interviews as part of this larger quality control feature I did. Uh, you know, he was the sort of artistic centerpiece of that, in addition to the executives uh, who, who were guiding his career, Coach K and P from Quality Control, um, and. I think people remember, right, when you're there at the beginning. Um, so every time I would see him along the way, you know, I would say, I want to keep doing this. I want to keep seeing where you're going. And I remember pretty distinctly, you know, when when the book was was uh, being floated and, you know, I had an offer to write it. Uh, I went and I met Coach K and P and Lil Baby at the Spotify office where they were playing whatever his new project was. Maybe, you know, he was putting out music so quick at that point that I don't even remember which one it was, but I think it was the mixtape after the one I wrote about. Uh, and he was there playing it for them, you know, trying to get promo. And, and, and I sat in with them on their meeting. And then, you know, after I sat down uh, with Coach and I said, you know, I want to I want to make this book. I want you guys to be a big part of it. There's no way to do this book if it's going to be based in the present day without you. You know, not only are you guys the ones breaking all the artists, but but you're the you know, you open the doors in this town. Right. They're the they're the they're the biggest the biggest names in town at that moment and beyond. Um, and, you know, he just said, let's do it. So along then I followed you know, various artists, both connected to them and not along the way. Not everything in the book is about quality control. There's a, a ton of tangential characters. Um, uh, but like I said, because there, it is such a small town, because it is a music scene, right? I think that that gets overlooked a lot um, when you're thinking about this, this rap music that goes internationally. But it's a music scene just like Seattle grunge was in the 90s or just like, you know, Athens indie rock was uh, or, you know, Laurel Canyon or any, any music scene. Like these are overlapping groups of friends, collaborators, enemies, family, you know, and all of the same creative stuff is coming out of there. So one person would lead to the next, even if it wasn't within the same label or within the same exact uh, music orbit. So the book really has two sides. It's got the music side and it's got the raw cultural side. So many people would say, because you depict a scene where almost everybody involved has been to jail. There's a lot of crime. What was it like being a middle-class white boy in these situations? And did they accept you? Uh, I think they did accept me. Um, I mean, you know, I think the, the, the proof is in the reporting. I think, you know, I got myself into rooms uh, by being trustworthy and being open and straightforward with people uh, about what I was doing. I said very clearly, you know, this is 
culture, right? This is what's moving markets. What's what's moving records. This is this is what people want, right? You, what you guys are doing is important, um, and I want to preserve that for history, right? I want to show people where this music comes from, and the reality in the music, in the videos, and behind the scenes is that a lot of this music comes from poverty, right? It comes from necessity. It comes from bad neighborhoods. And, you know, there's a, a character uh, by the name of Marlo in the book. And, you know, he, he came up with Lil Baby. He did not make it to the same heights that Lil Baby did. Uh, but he was open about where he came from and how he'd grown up. And to me, that was as important as the music side because he was the real deal. You know, he he was rapping about things you hear on the radio, even though they may be maybe extreme. Uh, but he was also living it right. And and by being there every step of the way for his career, I think he he saw that I really wanted to see his life and and where he came from and how he lived on a daily basis. And, and he was keen to show it to me, you know, we would, every time I would go to Atlanta, I would try to get in touch with him. He would pick me up and we would just ride around all day. Right. He would just take me to, to whatever he was doing. Right. Whether that was, you know, getting a haircut at the barbershop or going to a block party or going to the recording studio. Um, and, you know, we just, we, we built a rapport um, and, and we built a relationship of, of trust. And I think, he got it. You know what I mean? He knew that it was worth it for people to pull back the curtain and sort of see a, a, a layer of things that you don't always see, right? You, even, even in rap music, if it comes from struggle and it comes from poverty, then it very quickly becomes about, you know, the, the material gains or, you know, the success or what I made it out from. Um, but, you know, I think whether you're talking about Marlo or you're talking about P or you're talking about Lil Reek, another artist in the book that I spent a lot of time with around his neighborhood, uh, you know, they were, they were, I think, excited that somebody was engaged uh, and wanted to learn, right? They wanted to, like, be able to use whatever platform I had to shine a light on the reality of the situation in a city like Atlanta. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. 
apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, you depict dangerous neighborhoods. Did you ever experience danger? Personally? I don't I don't think so. Um, you know, I it was very clear that I was there as a music reporter, right? I was I was hanging around with musicians. Uh they are used to you know, this is where they grew up. This it's not dangerous to them uh on a on a day-to-day basis. Um, uh, you know. Sometimes I would be in cars going really fast, uh, you know, like young kids in fast cars like to test the engine. Um, you know, sometimes I was like gripping, you know, my, my armrest a, a little hard. Um, but, you know, I think it, it, it's, it, was, it, it was fun, you know, it was, it was mostly uh, lighthearted. Like even if, if these are neighborhoods where, you know, there, there can be higher rates of crime or whatever, like, People are just living their lives, right? They wake up, they go to work, they hang out with their friends, they get oh, yeah, something to eat. On some level, that's true, but you depict mostly uh, single-parent households. You depict a lot of these people end up raising themselves. A lot of people are involved in street crime. A lot of people are involved in drugs. And those illegal things usually come with violence, death, etc. So let's talk about little baby. You, you talk about someone who ultimately segues out of the family unit and finds their own way, mostly in illegal ways, to get ahead. And then you also depict in the book, a lot of people are doing so well on the street, they don't want to focus on music. So what is really going on in the street, in the neighborhoods that these people people you talk to live in i mean that's the reality of the situation right like these are places that uh, america and state government city government has forgotten right these are places with school systems that are decimated with police forces that are you know antagonistic or or decimated uh you know there there's there are food deserts you know there's very limited economic opportunity uh, you know, and, and, and everybody's doing their best, right. To, to, to get by. And, and the thing about my, my subjects and the people I spoke to, you know, they were honest, right. They were, they were saying, 
I, I'm, I'm trying to better my life. I'm trying to better my family's life. I'm not always doing the right thing. Uh, you know, they, someone like Marlo, like, you know, he, he was very clear about when he was doing wrong. Um, but you know, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't embedded with them on a 24 hour a day basis. Right. A lot of this stuff was described to me, you know, there are a ton of footnotes in the book, you know, there are documentaries about this stuff, other articles, books, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm cobbling together a sort of portrait of these things. Uh, but look, this is, this is the reality of, of, of life in America, right? This is the guns. There are guns everywhere, right? There are guns in white neighborhoods. There are guns in black neighborhoods, uh, drug dealing, you know, what, what this, this, the drug, the money that comes out of the illegal drug market, like comes from somewhere, you know, somebody, somebody's benefiting, uh, this is just this is just everyday life, and I think that's part of the reason this music is so popular, right? Uh, at one point, you know, P, P, one of the quality control executives who who also comes from from this world, you know, he he said to me, "There's more people in the street than anything, right? The reason so many people want to listen to this music is because most people are struggling, right? And and even if it's a overblown version of this, an artistic version, right? A composite." Uh, of all of the good and the bad that come out, come from places like this, like it's, it's true and it rings true to people and it rings true to their struggles and it rings true, uh, about their, their aspirations and, and their ambitions. Um, and you know, I think, I think, I don't, I don't think the book is heavy handed in terms of, you know, whether this is, uh, whether this works every time, right. Whether rap is salvation, whether, you know, you can, everybody's going to become famous on, on some talent. Uh, you know, I think, it, I think it tries to paint a, an honest portrait of that, right. Some people make it, some people don't, like you said, there's, there are people who make more money illicitly than they do legally. Uh, and, and that's a hurdle, right. And there are characters in the book again, who are open about that. Um, just like there are people in the real world who are open about that. Um, so, you know, I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to paint an accurate portrait of, of the people I met and the way they described their lives. Okay. I think it's little P's mother, a little baby's mother who grows up in a very strict household, enters the military, ends up having a child, seems pretty intelligent Ends up working manually. Extremely intelligent, extremely intelligent. And yet still, yeah, making minimum wage, you know, cleaning the courthouse, working at the post office. You know, she, she's a single mother, uh, as you said, a veteran, uh, a, a, you know, an, a, a Marine veteran, uh, extremely bright woman, well-traveled, spent time in Japan, you know, uh, just an inspirational figure all around. And, and like you said, yeah, still you know, raising three children by herself on a minimum wage salary. Like that's, that's America for you. Okay. And then there's another line from one of the people in the book. They're talking about education. And the person says, I can point all these people in the hood who have a college education and work in minimum wage jobs. Why is this the case? Your insight. <laughs> Man, that's, that's, that's above my pay grade. Uh, we'll have to ask my, my economics colleagues uh, about that. But yeah, you're, refer you're referring to Offset, who, uh, you know, was, was part of Migos, the, the rap trio, one of the, you know, the first major act uh, for quality control, one of the biggest, one of the biggest rap acts of the last decade. Um, and yeah, he said that to me, you know, in the basement of his mansion in the Atlanta suburbs, you know, he was like, 
he had his first child when he was a teenager. He was very open. He took to crime to try to provide for his child. And he said, you know, I could have, I could have been on the straight and narrow, but who's to say that that would have worked for me. Right. And look, this is, this is racism. This is, uh, you know, a, a lack of economic opportunity. You know, you can trace this back through, through redlining and, you know, mortgages and you know hiring practices of of people of color like again this is this is a bit beyond my purview um but i think the idea that you know not everybody is starting from the from the same place and not everybody has the same opportunities um based on where they grew up where they went to school what color their skin is like you know i think reasonable people can disagree but uh you know i think that 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 this is not exactly a controversial idea, right? Uh, income inequality in America, uh, you know, last time I checked, is uh, it's out of control. Okay, just drilling down one more time. Sure. Is it the people you talk to that depict a dangerous lifestyle with drugs, shootings, gangs, etc.? Or is everybody affected in these neighborhoods? You know, in certain neighborhoods, you have to, not in Atlanta, maybe, but you have to choose sides. You have to be in a gang to be protected. Are there people just living normal lives? I'm talking about the of young course, young- of course, of course. This is not monolithic, right? This is this is a small subset of people who felt like they had no choice, right, and got involved in some sort of a dangerous lifestyle. You know, uh, Marlo grew up in Bowen Homes, right? This is a this was a, a infamous project in Atlanta that was that was since that's since been knocked down. You know, his father grew up in a project in in Philadelphia. There's you know quotes from him in this book. Uh, he was you know living between households, father in and out of jail. You know, uh, mother having her own issues, living with family members, living with friends. Uh, in a dangerous place, right? And this was the example he saw. You know, there's there's some there's a scene in the book. Uh, you can find this on YouTube. Actually, Lil Baby did a, a panel, right, uh, about uh, reintegrating from incarceration, right, with alongside other businessmen. You know, guys who got out of jail and became truck drivers, uh, opened their own business, that sort of thing. And he says, you know, if 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 you're around drug dealers, odds are you're going to think that that's what you do. You become a drug dealer. He didn't know any doctors. He didn't know any lawyers. You know, he didn't, he didn't see that example firsthand. Um, are there people who grow up in these neighborhoods and, and become, you know, uh, doctors, lawyers, philosophers, of course, engineers, of course, uh, you know, but, but it's not easy. Um, and so much of this rap music, I think that's the point, right? Like the rap music that is coming out of Atlanta on the largest scale is is about these things, right? It's about this struggle. Uh, and so it is created by people who have seen it up close, right? Or people who have been through it themselves. Um, and so, of course, it's a, it's a self-selecting group. But what I wanted to tease out was why this music, right? Trap, for lack of a better term, is, is the sort of umbrella genre of it within within hip-hop just for those who don't know define trap please so trap comes out of what are referred to as trap houses right trap houses are places for you know the the making and the selling of drugs usually abandoned houses uh in in 
four neighborhoods. Um, this, you know, came from Gucci Mane. This came from Young Jeezy. This came from Ti. These are people who became, you know, mega stars in in the early two thousands. Uh, you know, there's early mentions of of trap in uh, uh, Dungeon Family songs. You know, Outcast, that sort of thing. Um, and you know, Big Boy of Outcast says like that. You know, that's why they call it the trap because you're trapped, right? Uh, and and this music is about that lifestyle, right? That 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 world, and it's dramatized, of course. It's art, of course, um, but it's also in places and especially with certain artists, autobiographical. Um, so this is this is like a extremely niche, extremely local culture that became popular culture, right? This became the biggest music in the world over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, and it comes from a small group of people. And that's, that's what the book is about. Okay, but almost to a person, not Lil Yachty, but almost to a person, all of the people in the book have been to jail. So, uh, not, not, tr- not quite true. I, w- I wouldn't say that true. I mean, I mean the, you know, the book is about lawyers. The book is about, uh, people's friends. The book is about people's mothers. Um, you know, Lil Reek Marlo, who, you know, was a self proclaimed, you know, drug dealer and career criminal. He never went to jail. He didn't have a felony on, on his record at all. Um, but, you know, I think I don't have to tell tell you the the rates of incarceration of black men in this country uh, are completely disproportional to the population. Um, so again, that's a the prison industrial complex is the subject of of many other better, uh, more in depth books than mine, which focuses more on the music. Um, but I w- but I wouldn't say that that everyone here has been to jail. Well, let me put it a different way. Many people, especially those not interested in hip-hop, believe that these, judge these rappers in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Where to use the same word we just talked about, when you read one your book, they literally seem trapped. Mm-hmm. And that you also talk about the cops in one town out to get uh, the rappers, one being, up, yeah. Yeah, one being on parole, yep. going back. So you end up with a sympathetic portrait. You have these people who are reasonable, sort of caught in their lifestyle, as opposed mm-hmm. to just who are just gangsters from minute one. Yeah, look, these are not these are these are not, you know, as as far as I can tell, violent sociopaths. These are people who grew up in tough circumstances with very few opportunities who then found their way out, and then you have a target on your back in a totally different way, right? And that's like, you know, Drew Finling uh, is a character in this book. He's a, he's a defense attorney in Atlanta, currently in the news, uh, you know, helping to defend Donald Trump uh, in, the, in the Georgia election probe, which is a whole other story. Um, but but Drew has become very close with a lot of these guys, right? He found himself uh, becoming a lawyer, for hip hop royalty, basically uh, through early representation of various figures, including including Gucci Man, and you know he 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 said this to me over and over again. He said like I can't believe the target that's on the backs of these guys, right? Like these are guys who who made their way out of what would have been a dangerous criminal lifestyle, and yet they're still being harassed by police uh, for the opposite, right? For having 
fancy cars or or jewelry or you know smoking weed which if you've walked down the street in new york city or where you are in la you know everyone's smoking weed um and yet you know this is often often the pretense to 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 lock people up um so yeah i think you know the 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 weight of <laughs> uh american oppression in in all in all senses um sort of bears down on these guys and and that's why they're you know they're they're resilient uh and i think that's why the art is often so so vibrant and so uh visceral and people can't get enough of it right like that's that's the other thing like i was talking before about p saying people want to listen to this music because it reflects their reality but it's not only them right like rich white kids in college also want to listen to this music because it's cool because it's dangerous because it's sexy right the same thing that that uh you know popular music and especially black popular music has always been um and so so there's the the voyeuristic component of it just as much as uh there's the sort of autobiographical uh you know component of people seeing themselves in the music there's there's people who just want a glimpse right people who want to try on blackness or 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 get a taste of it or what they assume to be you know a certain certain type of blackness um so you know that that cross-generational transracial you know appeal that 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 hip-hop has has been shown to have over the last almost 50 years now is like it's it's fascinating right and there should be countless books about about this it's not only it's not only atlanta it's not only trap music um but but this is you know this is the story of popular music going back to you know i, I don't know if you saw the basil Ehrman's elvis movie um but but it's 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 the same thing i see you shaking your head <laughs> you know well just, I, this is off point but basil Ehrman uh, elvis movie like his other movies, figures got to be more Baz Luhrmann than I'm mostly joking, but but you know what I mean, right? But um, the other thing that is fascinating in the book, you know, people know a lot about the inner workings of the music world at this point in time, and you hear these people at age five, they start making music, their parents are. Uh, spreading the demos in this particular case you have a couple of examples where from reading the book it sounds like they were drug dealers and quality control seems to say well you have such experiences you'd make a good rapper is that how it went down that's the story of a couple of these guys i mean you know if you think back to 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 young jeezy who you know an early discovery of of coach k he was a hustler, as as he described it, and he was trying to fund other rappers. And Coach met him in a recording studio and said, "No, no, you're the rapper. Like you have the star power. You have the voice. You have the clothes. You have the cars. Like you're you're the guy." Uh, and, and then he recreated that, right, with Lil Baby. Lil Baby was known as a gambler, right? Lil Baby was was selling weed and gambling. He would come by the studio, hang out with Migos take their money after they came back from from touring right with a little bit of cash in their pocket and and he he would shoot dice with them right and and he had such star power right like this is this is a timeless story right to go back to 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 elvis or one one story i tell in the book uh was jermaine dupree discovering crisscross these were not drug dealers these were kids in the mall and jermaine dupree said they have it 
right? Star power, like whatever that ineffable quality is, star power. And in rap specifically, it often comes with authenticity or the appearance of authenticity, right? So when Coach K would see someone like Lil Baby, he would say, you know, other people are out here rapping your story. You should do it, right? You have a look, you have some money in your pocket, you have, you know, the carriage, like the swag, uh, for lack of a better term, like, you know, just, just give it a shot. Right. And baby would say, no, like, that's not for me. That's not for me. Baby, you know, he told me straight up and his friends told me too, like, we didn't, we didn't look up to rappers. We thought they were corny. We thought they were fake. You know, we didn't know, we didn't know rappers. Like we knew whatever other hustlers were on our block. Uh, people were more immediate to us. Um, and, and for baby, you know, it took, it took going to prison for, for him to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. Like there, there's a safer way. There's a, there's a better way. Um, and a lot of people try it and they're not any good at it. Right. But this is someone like him put in the work, had enough of the sort of natural skill, the natural charisma stories to tell, and then put in the work to get good enough that people wanted to hear his music. Uh, and you know, this, again, this is like a, a fraction of a percentage of people who can pull this off. Um, but it's not no one. And, and every day the barrier falls, right? Like the, the bar of, of what it takes to be able to put out music, right? I think, you know, maybe we'll get to this, but the, the distribution channels, the, it, used to, it used to be expensive to record, right? It used to be expensive to print a CD uh, and have it put in Best Buys around the country, right? Now, record on your laptop, put it on YouTube for free. And all of a sudden you have a million dollar deal. You know, we, we see the story over and over again in rap and, and outside of rap. Um, but I think as these technological hurdles have fallen, uh, you know, there's, there's more and more opportunity for somebody with a, you know, a local following, a story to tell and, and, and a little bit of drive and star power to, to be able to make it. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. 
I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are frequently depictions in the book of large amounts of cash. One person, I think it's little baby, is going to shoot his first video in the studio, shows up with $30,000 cash. So uh, I think it might have even been 300 Whatever it was, it was a staggering stump thing. Then also there's another one where the money goes out the window, never recovered. How much is that? Uh, I think that was a, that was a story someone told me about Shardy Lowe, who rest in peace to Shardy Lowe. He was a he was a a, a rapper from the the mid two thousands. Uh, again, you know, b- big reputation as a, as a drug dealer and a hustler. And one of his one of his right hand men told me a story, yeah, about being on a car, you know, being in a police chase and Shardy Lowe throwing, you know, 120, 150 grand out of the window uh, to just not be caught with the proceeds from whatever it is they were doing. So I mean. First and foremost, to shoot a video in the studio, it's almost hard to spend three hundred thousand dollars. And so I, I should I should cut in here and say this was not a music video. This was just a video for Instagram of showing people that he was rapping, right? Saying this guy who you might follow or know from the neighborhood, like we're going to start rapping. It was just an in studio video. It wasn't a it wasn't a music video. It was just a you know, I, here I am. Pressing, pressing record on my phone to show you what my friend is up to. Okay, then what's the 300K about? He just had that in his pocket? Yeah, it's to, it's to show off with. It's a, you know, it's a trophy. You're saying he just wanted to show, wait, did he show the 300K on screen? Yeah, oh yeah, yes. But did he really have the 300K and, you know, et cetera? Look, uh, who who this cash belongs to at any given moment uh it, it, it's impossible to say um i think you know part of this fast money lifestyle that that's depicted in the book and that these guys you know live and and rap about you know there's a quote in the book you know that's how atlanta goes you're up you're down you're up you're down you're up you're down uh and and that's a you know that's that's in, in endemic, I think, to to being in the street in this way. Um, and look, it's a prop, right? It's a prop. It's the same as a car, a necklace. Um, you know, there's an Instagram trend these days of rappers, uh, you know, bringing trying to bring a million dollars to the hood, right? To to bring a million dollars to where they grew up with, as a way to say. You know, you, this world told me I wasn't never going to be anything, and and look at me now. And not only look at me now in Beverly Hills or you know in a midtown skyscraper, but look at me now where I came from, right? Where where the police were throwing me against the wall, and you know telling me I'd never be anything, and my teachers, you know, didn't care about me, and 
you know, told me I'd, I'd grow up to be in jail. And, and, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a talisman. It's a trophy. It's a, it's a statement uh, to say, you know, look what I became. Okay. Stories are legion of all musicians, people in the music world being ripped off. It's even mm-hmm. worse for black people. You depict the successful people having a great amount of money. Is it more transparent, more equal in Atlanta in the world that you investigated? Or in reality, a lot of money, as much money as they have, a lot of it's going somewhere else. Look, what is a record label if not uh, somebody reaching into your pocket <laughs> to have a piece of uh, of what your, what your talent wrought? You know, um, I think the music business is unfair, right? Like these contracts... I, look, maybe it's not unfair. Maybe the labels put in the research and development. Maybe they do the marketing and they they take on all the risk, like uh, whatever it is. But traditionally, we have seen you know the people who have been brave enough to talk about what their contracts are like, what their royalty rates are, what their advance is. You know, I talk about for people who don't know. I think anybody listening to your podcast knows this, but but advances are are uh, not free money, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're recoupable, right? You know, you don't see another dollar until you earn back that money that they advanced to you. It's credit. Um, so look, I think that that's happening in this world as much, if not more than it's happening everywhere else. Uh, these, not only, not only are these artists young, uh, but they're really young. You know, these are, they're rappers being signed for millions of dollars that are 15 years old, you know? There's a chapter uh, about about A&R people in Atlanta in the book where, you know, uh, uh, Ray Daniels, this, this, this executive in Atlanta says, I just got back from, you know, giving, giving a 15 year old a million dollars. Like that's, and, and he's like, that's crazy, right? Like on its face, like that's a, it's a crazy proposition. Um, but, but that artist has to earn back that money. Right. And there's managers to pay there's lawyers to pay. There's, early investors, right? I talk about the sort of the culture of, you know, uh, street guys putting money behind uh, an emerging artist, whether it's to record a video or get the money or excuse me, to get the song played at the strip club or whatever it is, you know, everybody wants their piece. Um, And, and that's the same, I think, across genres. Um, This just happens to be the most lucrative and the most popular genre right now. So the amounts are higher. Um, you know, we saw this sort of gold rush, uh, of, of deals, uh, among, uh, around the streaming era as the record companies, you know, rebounded after the, the, the dark times <laughs> of, of the post Napster years. Um, so, you know, this is not primarily a book about recording contracts, so I didn't get too into the nitty gritty there, um. And I think a lot of these guys are doing well, but just as many of them are, you know, signing bad deals, signing horrible deals, have, have, have no experience, no guidance. Uh, and, and when a label comes to you and says, you know, here's 25 grand for the rights to your smash viral single on TikTok and, you know, your mom needs to pay the rent and, you know, you, you have no career prospects at the moment, like if you're going to sign, you know, so that, that's where the, that's where the, uh, the exploitation i think really comes in here now they talk about income we talk about little yachty but he had his own look using my air quotes brand but in the traditional 
mainstream music business, which is now becoming, you know, this is the mainstream business. What I'm trying to say is you have the record contract. If you have an endorsement deal, it's publicized, sponsorship, product. Your grosses are in Polestar. Mm -hmm. You talk about these guys going on the road, maybe dropping in multiple gigs a night, just making a to-track appearance. Like it's a whole nother subculture that's not reported. So what can you tell us about that? Look, I can't speak to uh, how this stuff is reported on taxes, right? And how this income is it, it, is uh, logged. <laughs> um, again, that's beyond my pay grade. Uh, I'm, I'm not an accountant. Um, but but look, yeah, this is there's a cash business here, right? Whether it's, like you said, features, right? A rapper pays another rapper 10 grand, 20 grand, 50 grand, 100 grand to, to get on the track with them for extra attention. You know, you make a club appearance. You know, you, you hear a lot of rappers these days, um, you know, getting getting a little wonky with the economics, talking about the back end, right? So you get a you get a certain a certain amount of the of the payment to show up and rap two songs at a club in the VIP section, uh, you know, up front when you sign and then you go and then as, as you're walking out, they hand you the rest in cash and that's the back end, right? Um, so, yeah, I think at, just like this culture comes from mixtapes, right? This, this, this world, this is, and I think this is why one of the reasons why rap music was so quick to adapt to streaming, right? Is it was used to moving quickly. It was used to being a volume business. It was used to being about market share, right? And these were homemade recordings, tapes, CDs, uh, sold out of the trunks of cars, sold at flea markets, at barbershops, you know, covers printed on an inkjet, you know, uh, beats taken from online and not cleared, um, cash changing hands, like, this is a these these are these are underground economies, uh, and and there's a ton of them that overlap. I think uh, in 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 rap specifically. So yeah, you know, Polestar is one thing, but um, you know, good luck to good luck to them and and the Forbes list uh, to really get to the bottom of how a southern rapper makes money on the club circuit. Okay, another thing you talk about is how really. It's not gang oriented. And then a gang comes, I believe, from Detroit and really permeates Atlanta and Florida until it's ultimately busted. And you're talking about today the flourishing of strip clubs. To what degree is that a sideshow or to what degree does that have an effect on the flourishing of rap in uh, Atlanta? So you're you're referring to BMF, the Black Mafia family. This is, you know, this is a a well-known story at this point. I don't, I don't spend too much time on it. Um, you know, there's a, there's a great book, uh, about BMF. There's television series about BMF, countless documentaries, a million YouTube videos. Um, but this is, yeah, this is street lore, right. Of, of big Meech, uh, coming down to Atlanta after building his, his cocaine syndicate, uh, it, for out of Detroit with his brother. Uh, the two brothers run, run, run the business together. One of them moves to Atlanta and he decides he wants to get into rap, right? And they they, they have an artist, uh, Blue Da Vinci, uh, who never really becomes anything, but they also have a sort of off-paper uh, alliance with Young Jeezy, who really really makes the most out of, out of this association um, and, and becomes a big star, even though he wasn't technically signed to their label. But, you know, they have a, they have a magazine, 
as you said, like the, you know, according to everybody, the clubs were flush with money. The nightlife was crazy. Uh, you know, this this was uh, it's the same thing you saw in Miami, right? Cocaine cowboys. You know, you you you, you even going back to prohibition, right? This is what uh, Boardwalk Empire is about, um, which is you know, money trickles down, right? From, from illegal enterprise, uh, when it hits a certain level and, and everybody wins, right? The restaurants, uh, the clubs, the recording studios, the, you know, uh, the the luxury stores at the mall. Um, so yeah, when you're talking about, you're talking about Atlanta, you know, the, the first wave that I, that I talk about in the beginning of the book, you know, that's, that's Jermaine Dupree, that's Outkast, that's LaFace Records, Elliot Reed, uh, Babyface, you know, TLC, not really, not really street rap uh, as, as, as we know it now. Um, but, but when, when trap takes over, right, in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of that comes from BMF and the lifestyle that they were, you know, propagating around the clubs, around the venues. Um, and people were either affiliated, uh, you know, tangential, they wanted to keep up, they wanted to be in the mix, you know, I think, so that, that I think is, is extremely influential, um, both economically, but also culturally and, and stylistically, this idea of, of, you know, glitz and flash and glamour, um, you know, people rap about it to this day, right? Big Meech having tigers at his birthday party. Um, and I spoke for the book to, to this party planner, Hannah Kang, who, who's still the, the biggest, best, you know, black celebrity party planner. She, she's, she's a Korean woman, but, but she, she says in the book, you know, I've never worked for a white person in my whole career uh, in Atlanta, which I, which, I just, which I loved. And I think really gives you, you know, uh, a portrait of this place as, as black Mecca, black Hollywood, whatever you want to call it. Um, but, but yeah, you know, the, the BMF legend just sort of looms really large uh, to this day. You know, everybody I talked to were like, oh, it'll never, it'll never be like that again. Um, and, and, you know, wh- whether, that's, whether, whether that's completely accurate or not, like that, that's, how, that's, that's how myths uh, build and, and, and carry on, right? Okay. You depict the strip clubs. You say when the, these, uh, the mafia family ultimately gets taken down, strip clubs get taken down, but still, you know, they're cutting a track. They'll go to the strip club to demo it. Then you have another guy at the strip club talking about the right way to make it rain. <laughs> to, right. The, to this day, what is the status of strip clubs and how much influence do they have vis-a-vis the music and the culture? So this is again something that that's been written about many times over the years. I didn't want to linger on it too much in the book because I felt like it's pretty well established. My my close friend and colleague John Carmonica did a great story about Atlanta strip clubs as a as a proving ground for records. Uh, another one of my colleagues, uh, Richard Fawcett, did one uh, when 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 he was at the LA Times, I believe. Um, but th- but this has happened for decades at this point, which is uh, you know this is the, like I said, this is a proving ground, right? This is this is party music often, right? This is music for dancing to. This is music for that you know makes people want to spend money, um, and it's its own economy. Uh, like we were talking about the illicit economies, you know, you you go, you slip the DJ a little money, he plays your track. If the dancers like it, they dance better. 
to the track that then makes customers spend more money on them, right? And then they want to hear your song again, so they request it again. Uh, and and you know, it, it's this whole it's a whole economy. I I spent a night um, at, at a club called Follies, which no longer exists. Uh, with with this guy DJ John, uh, and this didn't make the book. I, this this could be its own book, honestly. DJ John, uh, a, amazing guy, big white guy, started DJing in strip clubs. You know, when they were not allowed to play rap music, right? He said when he started at Follies, it was it was a rock bar, right? It was like a Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, you know, the you know airport workers would go there, and and rap was banned, right? DJ John worked in Follies every week for more than 20 years, right? I, I wanted to call him the Cal Ripken Jr. of Atlanta strip clubs. <laughs> um, because, and, and he got to see the whole thing change, right? By the time I spent a night with him at Follies, he was managing a rapper himself. <laughs> he, he had no interest in, in rap music when he started there. Um, but he would, he would take money to play whatever songs people wanted to hear. Usually that means their own song. Uh, but it could just be a request, right? If, if Bob, if you rolled in and and you wanted to hear, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> "Shake Your Tail Feather" uh, <laughs> by Nelly, you could you could send John uh, money on PayPal and he'll play it right then and there. Um, so people do it as a as a promotional tactic because I think you know one of the things that makes Atlanta so special uh, is that there really is a local scene and things break on the ground before they break nationally. Right. And that's something that's like a, an age old tale in the music industry, but has, has been upended right now. You can be from Singapore and you can drop a song that sounds like Atlanta rap on YouTube. And maybe you get big before anybody even knows who you are. Right. Your song goes viral on TikTok or, or, or whatever, you know? Uh, and yet these artists and these labels, in Atlanta, like they still see the value in building an audience, right? Building a groundswell of people because, because that's how you build careers, right? Instead of one-off hits, uh, you, 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 you get a loyal fan base and, and this happens in nightlife, right? And so whether it's, whether it's a strip club or a club club or somewhere in between, you know, they, they want their music to work there first. Because they feel like once they have this, the neighborhood behind them and then they have the city behind them, that that's going to serve them well when they break nationally. Okay. On the other side of the fence from the artists, you talk about quality control. You talk about uh, Coach K and you talk about P and you talk about where they came from. What is so special about them that they can engender success? I mean, I think they're really, 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 really bright business minds, right? First and foremost, I think they also make a great pair, a really complimentary pair, right? Um, coach, you know, Coach grew up in, in Indianapolis. Uh, he, he came to Atlanta, you know, as a young man, drawn in by Freaknik, which is the sort of big black college spring break thing that really, you know, put, put, put Atlanta nightlife on the map uh in the early 90s uh and he spent a lot of time as uh, as i've mentioned sort of you know working artist after artist after artist as a manager uh building these relationships with radio with other labels with other artists with producers you know just years decades right of groundwork 
and you know grew into a godfather of of the scene right everybody knows him everybody respects him they respect his ear they respect the way he does business um and and P's, P is different right P didn't start as a musician P P started in the streets like he'll 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 tell you that you know and and he's one of these guys who saw music as a way out right he he wanted to invest the money he'd made he had some real estate he bought a studio he he tried to make it work he he wasn't sure what to do wasn't finding success realized you know that as as, as much money as you can make in music and in, in rap music you can, you can lose it just as quickly right it's a total gamble um but when he partnered with coach and they discovered migos they just both bring something different to the table, right? Coach, coaches plugged, coaches plugged in and in, in the boardrooms and the radio stations, and and P's a talent scout, right? He knows he knows what's going on in 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 these neighborhoods. He 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 meets young kids, artists, people who you know show him what's happening, and he's a motivator, right? I saw him do it over and over again. I saw him do it with little baby firsthand. I saw him do it with Marlo firsthand. He he's the one who can say. I've been where you've been, right? I've seen what you've seen. I've gone through these things. And I promise you, you listen to me and you follow what I tell you. Not only are we going to make a lot of money, not only are you going to be able to help your family, but you're going to be safer, right? And he's he's really taken it upon himself, I think, to, you know, uh, mentor these artists, right? And and what they talk about is is artist development, right? This is something that is nearly extinct uh in in the record business and why we see you know a one-hit wonder uh every day right on tiktok or you know a half a hit wonder like sometimes they're not even making the billboard chart um and and one funny story i think it didn't didn't make the book might be in a times article um but they had to, they have to stop themselves right from going after some of these viral things. There was a moment when I first started reporting on these guys when I think P said, you know, uh, there was the the girl known as the Catch Me Outside girl, right? She became she became bad baby. She went viral on a Dr. Phil clip, and they were like, ah, oh, maybe you know, she started rapping because you know, what do you what do you what do you do after you have a a, a viral moment? Maybe maybe you start you start rapping. And, you know, I think, I think it was P one of them was like, ah, oh, maybe we should go after her. Like, maybe we should do this. And, and, and coach said like, no, like, that's not what we do. Like, let's keep our eye on the ball. Right. What we do is we build artists, we build careers, we build brands. Um, and yeah, they're with these guys and they're with these guys every day. Right. They're constantly sending new music back and forth, constantly pushing them, do more shows, record more, another mixtape, another video. Um, and yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a, a yin and a yang duo um, that you know everybody on the label responds to. Either you know they may be closer with one, they may be closer with the other, um, but they respect both of them. And I think you know at this point they've churned out so many artists who, again, don't have a hit song but have real careers. Uh, you know, I put them up there with you know a. a a no limit or a cash money or a G unit, whatever, you know, whatever the, these rap crews and labels over the last 20 years who have been able to make more than one star, like to do it once is a miracle, right? To do it five times is like, it's a, it's a, it's a system. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, another thing you depict in the book that is different from traditional conception of the music business is the recording. Now, Mm -hmm. traditional music business, you know, maybe you'll have pre-production, you work on the songs, and they say, well, we have 10 songs, we're going to record them, you know, but here, people are running around with hard drives, and you depict one saying, oh, there's a famous studio in New York, well, let's, you know, we got an hour free, let's go record. So, you know, they're constantly recording and a great percentage of the stuff never even comes out. Right. So it's how much do these people ultimately, let's say you're one, you know, one of these guys at quality control, how much will you record before they release something? Dozens, hundreds, thousands of songs probably on hard drives, right? This is, it's a, it's a volume business. It's, you know, they're putting out a ton of music, right? If you look at, look at little baby's discography, the first, whatever, it's been five years of his career, right? Stack that up against, you know, of course there are, there are rock bands that, that put out a ton of music, uh, whatever, guided by voices or, you know, some, something like that. Sure. Uh, but traditionally a major label chart topping artist, right? What they're going to put out 12 to 15 songs every 18 months. Little baby put out 
five mixtapes in 10 months, right? Each of them probably between 15 and 20 tracks. Um, this is what the audience wants, right? They're responding to, they're responding to the audience. They're, they're, they're churning at this rate and, and it's an artistic choice as well, right? Like the guys that they are emulating, the guys who, who started this, uh, this practice of recording in this way, improvisationally, uh, putting a ton of music out. This is, this is Gucci man. This is Lil Wayne. Uh, this is young thug. These guys all, all were putting out many, many mixtapes a year. Gucci man was putting out three mixtapes on the same day at one point, uh, at the peak of his career. Um, and I, there's just a, there's a lack of, of preciousness, um, about the art. Um, but I think the important thing to realize is like, that doesn't necessarily make it worse. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think the, 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 the audience, like the, it shows like people, people care about this music as much as you might care about a Beatles song, right. That they spent six months working on. Right. We see it in like the get back music video. Um, but, but that doesn't, that's not like a, one isn't, necessarily better than the other right and i think that that's you know there's a there's this idea that it's that it's disposable um but it's only as disposable uh, as 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 the audience wants it to be right like i i think i think we'll be playing bad and bougie at weddings in in 20 25 50 years right um and maybe you know it was made in one take in offset's basement uh but uh you know i think it's it's incredible to watch also just the the way they sort of start and stop without writing anything down uh, and sort of creating these, these melodies, these flows, these rhymes, uh, these jokes, these stories uh, in real time. So, so I feel truly, truly blessed to have been able to, to, to see it in person as much as I have. Okay. So you have all these rappers. Where's all the be- Where are all the beats or the music coming from? You know, that's something I wish I got into more in the book, right? There's a whole other book to be written about Atlanta producers, um, but they're working at a, at a similar pace, right? You have, you know, guys like Metro Boomin, um, guys like Murda Beats, guys like Zaytoven, you know, a classically trained pianist who, who, who played in church with his parents. He's, you know, instrumental to the careers of future Gucci Mane, Migos, uh, and 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 they're working similarly, right? They're making hundreds and hundreds of beats, dozens of beats, maybe you know thousands of beats over the course of their career, and and they're spreading them around their network, right? They're file sharing so easy, Dropbox. You know, I remember being in the studio with Marlo, who's trying to find something that inspired him. He just pulled up a Gmail, right? I guess you know you post looking for beats, post a Gmail address on your Instagram story, dozens of kids will hit you you know, with, with, with a beat within five, 10 minutes, it's just clicking around attachments, trying to find something that inspires him, trying to find something that, that catches his ear. Um, there are guys who, who make very bespoke versions of this, right? Um, people who will work months on the same beat, you know, get, getting the hi-hat just right, getting the bass just right. And then there are people who will just, you know, make three beats in an hour, uh, and there's no telling which one's going to become the basis for a hit song, right? So it's like, it's a grab bag. Um, 
yeah, like I said, you know, the the producers were, were not as big uh, of a, of a role in this book. I spoke I spoke to a lot of them. I saw a lot of them work, um, but they just didn't fit as much with the narrative. But you know, I I'd, I'd, I'd gladly gladly read that book too. You know, I I, I get into some of this um, in the video series I do for the Times Diary of a Song, uh, which is about about the making of tracks and you know how how stuff is created and then is made marketed and goes viral sort of uh in this era um but you know you think of something like old town road uh, which funnily enough was you know was recorded in an atlanta studio um by lil nas x uh but the beat came from a dutch teenager who he'd never met before who sampled a nine inch nails song that he'd never heard before that he pulled off of youtube you know um so and and then sold or leased even uh, for what, like 50, 75 bucks. Um, you know, there are endless sites for free beats, for cheap beats, for, you know, beats you can lease for a month, see if it takes off six months. Um, and, you know, the business of the stuff gets, gets super naughty uh, when it comes to, to, to clearing and samples and rights holders and publishing and all of that. Like, I don't know, um, you know, I don't envy uh, the the people behind the scenes who who have to clear all this music, um, but it's a it's an extremely fascinating and fast paced way to to create. Now you make the point you referenced it earlier that these guys in Atlanta, great degree, are recording differently from people previous in rap, in that they're yeah. literally doing it not sometimes word by word, but usually phrase by phrase. They're yeah. not starting out with a whole thing. Can you amplify that a little bit? Yeah, correct. So, so I mean, Jay Z famously, you know, says he never writes his lyrics down, right? But, but the amazing thing about Jay Z, according to you know people who've seen it, I've never, I've never uh, watched Jay Z record other than in you know the Fade to Black documentary and and various YouTube videos. But he's rapping whole verses at a time, right? Things that he comes up with in his head and remembers. Um, and and I think Lil Wayne uh, is is the same way. Um, he another one having learned from Jay-Z, you know, it's a point of pride, right? That he never wrote down his lyrics, but you think of, you know, some people might think of rap as, you know, a guy with a, with a black and white journal pad, right. Scribbling down stanzas, like they're a poem and then wrapping them into a microphone. Um, but the Atlanta style, especially over the last 10 years, um, it following in the footsteps of those guys that I named is extremely improvisational and it happens directly into the microphone, right? Sometimes, you know, some little baby said, you know, every now and then I'll get hired to do a feature for a song or whatever. I'll have an idea. I'll, I'll write something down. But almost always they're just playing the beat on loop and wrapping their ideas directly into the mic. Right. So they'll, they'll often start with like a gibberish sort of thing, which I've seen pop top liners do as well. Uh, sort of syllabic, melodic, uh, you know, a, a get a rhythm down with just a just a, a nonsense phrase. And then they start to fill in words and then they start to fill in phrases and then they start to fill in lines and they'll just go sort of like, you know, piece by piece by piece. Um, and, you know, I describe I describe Migos doing this in the book and their their relationship with their engineer, right, has to be like basically, uh, basically telepathic, right? The engineer knows when they want to go back uh, and do something over, keep something, you know, move on to the next thing. Um, and, it, and it's a sort of, this Lego block process where they're, they're just building and building and building. Um, and then all of a sudden you have 16 bars and, and, and you move on to the next one. 
Now, historically, popular music has not been about the lyrics. The lyrics are secondary. In the success of these songs, how much of it is the beat? How much of it is the lyrics in terms of the appeal? I think it really depends. I think, you know, Southern rap gets a reputation uh, for being non-lyrical. You know, there's the term mumble rap that was in vogue a few years ago, talking about people like Yachty and Future um, and Migos. Um, you know, I think that's sort of in line with biases against Southern people and especially Southern Black people throughout history, right? This idea that, you know, they have a country accent, therefore they're not as bright uh, as, you know, someone like a Nas or whatever, who's a, you know, Northern storyteller. Um but I mean, to me, like most of these guys are lyrical geniuses, right? And that's, you know, from Gucci Man to Young Thug to, to Lil Baby. Like, I think if you, you see the way they play with language, you see the way they, they, they describe an image, right? There's often economy in the writing, um, you know, the, the way they're putting phrases together the way they're birthing new slang, you know, someone like future, I think is like completely unparalleled when it comes to like lingo and just the way he's inserting new idioms into popular culture, right? Like this is a skill. This is not like, this is not anything to, to be sneered at. Um, and I think, you know, people get turned off by the auto tune, but if you listen to even someone like Lil baby, I think it's just a really sneakily lyrical, intricate rapper. Um, you know, his, his, his phrasing, his timing, he, he's so wordy, you know, you go see him in concert and, and, the, and the, the, the breath control is amazing. He's just, you know, these, these sort of run on verses, even, even the choruses are often, uh, extremely wordy. Um, and yeah, there's just, there's so many different flavors of this, um, even within Atlanta, even within guys who might sound the same, uh, at, at first at first glance but you know of course the beat is important right this is a this is like a music that is made to be felt often you know you you feel the you feel the baseline you know the the melody the 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 hi-hats um the cadences the patterns like you know i think it wouldn't be as popular internationally uh as it is without a lot of that stuff um you know they people in other markets might not even be following the the slang and the lyrics um but I think you you get out of it uh, what you put into it. Like I think if you invest in these guys, you see sort of how they're how they're building uh, stories, characters, narratives, not only within a song, but sort of over time uh, on mixtapes, uh, you know, on albums, on guest verses. You piecing together um, a, a story, a, a mythology, a narrative, a sort of you know internal um, world, right? They're you know characters characters that recur um you know street names geography it's a you know it's it's like a it's a folk tradition um i think in in a lot of ways now you recite essentially 30 years worth of history in the book and from those who are not deep in the scene it appears that a lot of these acts had a commercial and social peak and then it's passed now the music business to a great degree that's the way it's run but since, sure. to a degree, it's an underground economy, some of it's not monetized, are these people peak, peaking and disappearing? 
or are they being kept alive in this subculture and able to continue to monetize their quote again brands? I think you're seeing a lot more longevity these days, right? I think music industry in general, um, but in, in rap specifically, there wasn't often a super long tail for these things, right? You think of, you think of the, 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 the early New York rappers, right? They, they didn't rap into their forties or even into their thirties, you know, they were not celebrities, uh, in the same way that that you see now, you have guys who, you know, put out their their best album twenty years ago, who are still on the blogs and in the clubs and on TV every day. Um, so I think there is a there's a longer shelf life for these people, uh, for these artists, especially as celebrities. Um, but I think rap music is still very much a, a young man's game, right? There's always somebody fresher. There's always somebody doing something slightly different, something new. There's always somebody, you know, sexier, more dangerous, more experimental. Um, and, and these cycles go really quickly, right? I think even, you know, you look at quality control, it's existed since 2013. Uh, you know, when, when, when Migos started to blow up and, and, and then you look at someone like Lil Baby, who's now in the A-list himself, and they have many, many rappers that have come after that that are, you know, on their way up, like the, the churn even within one label. Uh, and you can see sort of, you know, who, who's peaking at any given moment or, or, or who's coming from behind. Um, you know, I think the audiences are always in search of the next thing. Um, but I think the idea, right, is that at a, at a label like this, and if, if, if you put out enough good work, uh, even if it's in a quick period of time and you sort of build your quote unquote brand and, and you establish your relationships and, and your fan base, you can continue to tour, you can continue to get endorsements, you can continue to, you know, be on television, show up at award shows. You know, luckily, I think for a lot of these rappers, the, the sort of mainstream monoculture uh, in American popular culture is still pretty slow, right? <laughs> so even if you're considered a little bit uh, passe or, you know, no longer the hot new thing in rap, you're still going to be uh, on network television. Okay. So music in general, and this sort of grows out of what you're saying, is overwhelming. You know, the hits in the Spotify Top 50 never meant less. Used to have a hit in the old days. Everybody knew it. Something can be number one. People haven't even heard of the act. So, if one has not been following this music and is uneducated, it just looks overwhelming. First, mm -hmm. there's SoundCloud. There are mixtapes mm -hmm. continuing to come out, never mind the history. There's a lot of people in the game. How does one follow it without making it a full-time job? I think this goes for any culture, right? You can, you can say the same thing about TV, right? I might be watching a show that I think is, is the best thing in the world on one streaming service, and you don't even have a login for that one, right? And you have no idea what I'm talking about. We think of, you know, I think you've written about this in the newsletter. You think of something like The Bear, right? The Bear in my world was a huge hit, right? Among people in the media, <laughs> uh, in 2022 you know relatively young something like industry or the bear is like that's what people are watching that's what people are talking about if i go home and see my parents they don't know what the bear is you know or or maybe they clicked on it on hulu and they accidentally found it they didn't know it was trendy right um look i i think 
the monoculture that I just referenced, like it barely exists anymore, right? Yeah, Even, I'm with you on that. I would say it doesn't exist at all, but okay. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, there are a handful of things that break through, right? Rihanna's going to play the Super Bowl. Like, that's a monoculture event, right? Arguably, you know, maybe the Beatles documentary, the Peter Jackson Beatles documentary. I feel like that that broke through as much as I'd seen anything break through in, in, in years, right? Um, going back to, to Migos, I think Bad and Bougie was a number one song in the world did my grandparents know it? Probably not. I think it had a huge amount of permeation into, into the mainstream. Um, and yet, like you're saying, and that was, that was five years ago. It's only gotten worse. Um, I think people choose their spots, right? They know what they're interested in. They know what Spotify serves them. They either listen to the radio or they don't. You know, I, I think, look, radio, like some of this music trickles up uh, onto the radio, usually after finding success on streaming, um, sticks around for a long time, right? We see like the charts are pretty stagnant, especially the airplay charts. Um, but someone like Lil Baby has found a ton of success on, you know, what's referred to as urban radio, like many, many, many number one songs there, which means, you know, people driving home from work, they, they know the sound of his voice, even if they don't know his biography. Um, but I think that there remains this question of like, superstars right is there a next generation of superstar who is who is the next superstar you know i i'm i'm looking at little baby's career now he has an album coming out right ahead of this book in in mid-october he's you know he's the the he's doing the theme song for the world cup he's the he's he has a budweiser sponsorship right it doesn't it doesn't get much bigger than that and yet if you ask your, your average person on the street depending on their age and where they're from in Times Square, I still don't know if they if if they know who he is, right? Like it's a it's a dice roll, um, but I think you know if you want to pay attention, you can just pick a city, pick a YouTube account, pick a pick one artist, listen to the artist featured on their song. You know, I think there's there's a million different paths to follow, um, and you can get a decent picture of of where hip hop is at, where regional rap is at. But I agree in terms of you know the the what 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 we what I grew up on and certainly what you grew up on uh, that idea of like a discrete a list of artists uh, that doesn't exist anymore. You know I've I've, I've written about someone like NBA YoungBoy uh, who one of the biggest rappers in the world. You know more YouTube streams than Taylor Swift. You know and yet no radio play zero television appearances nobody under the age of 30 knows who he is and uh, certainly not white people um so you know i i think i think it's a different world um but i think that applies across all media okay but let's go back to your tv analogy you're talking about hipsters media people knowing the bear i hear from a lot of people regularly and there are not many students of the game of streaming television. So they'll have watched the same shows. Even though they've got horrific reviews, they'll have watched The Offer. They'll sure. watch Ted Lasso, etc. You start talking about Borgen, even, one of the legendary foreign <laughs> shows. They have no yep. idea what you're talking about. So My girlfriend's I, a Borgen obsessive. Right. She loves that's it. another that's another podcast, but staying with the concept <laughs> of music, theoretically, you could pay attention to the Spotify top fifty. That could be your thing, okay, sure. 
And even narrower than that is terrestrial radio. At the other end of it in the book, there's multiple people creating a plethora of product. Outside, it looks like a lot of people are in that deep. Is the truth that there are a lot of people and this is just their passion? Or really, there's a limited number of people who are very passionate about it? That's a great question. I, You know, I think because this is a local scene, right, that, that I'm writing about, like, there's a way to be famous in Atlanta specifically where you're only famous in your city, right? I can, there are, there's a handful of artists at any given moment who, if you went to the mall there down on the West end, like that's a celebrity, you know what I mean? That's a, that's a, that's a hero. That's getting played out of cars in the parking lot. And yet there's no, even in the Spotify era, even in the YouTube era, there's no sort of permeation out outward. Uh, and I think, I think that exists in, in most American cities. I think like there are still subcultures there, especially in music, there are still local scenes. There are, you know, uh, hometown heroes. Um, and that's one of the things that draws me so much to, to rap. I don't know, you know, if the same thing happens in rock, right? I don't know really. It definitely does there, not. I, I agree with you. I think, you know, as much as we used to say, like, you could find a punk scene, you know, in any any metropolitan area or even a small town, I think they're fewer and further between now. But I think rap works in that local way. And I, and I think you do a very good job of depicting that. Let's talk about you specifically. This sure. is your beat. You wrote a book about Atlanta, but Atlanta is not the only epicenter of hip-hop, if it might be the most prominent at this point. To what degree do you listen to the mixtapes of hip-hop artists in New York, L.A., never mind before? Do you keep sure. up on all these people? Or, go on. I keep up less than I used to, right? I, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting old, right? This was, I'm, I grew up file sharing, right? I grew up on the internet. I, I was downloading music on Napster when I was, you know, 10, 11 years old. Uh, I'm the problem, you know? <laughs> um, but I also was an obsessive fan. I was discovering music on message boards. I was, you know, on every social network that, 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 that was growing. Um, and, and I prided myself on, on keeping up, right. On knowing what was hot on, on knowing what was going to be big before it was big. And that's, you know, part of the reason I ended up getting the job that I did is because I was honing those skills as a, as a fan first. Um, and then, you know, you learn about the industry, you read, you, you develop an ear. Um, and that's really helped me on my beat. Um, uh, but look, I mean, I, I had a book to write, you know, I, 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 ha I have a dog, I, ha I have a life, like I'm not spending as much time sort of um, trawling the internet uh, for obscure regional artists as I used to, but I think I keep up more than 99.99% of people. Okay, let me ask the question a different way. Sure. Pri prior to the internet, anybody in the music business knew every record on the chart. Right. They may not have literally heard it, but they know about it, whatever. Anybody yep. today who says they, especially the albums chart, anybody who says they know every album, they're just lying. Nobody does. There's always stuff there you don't know. John so, Perellis knows. 
we'll we'll leave it to that, but I don't I don't want to debate <laughs> this issue right now. Fine, so, fine, continue. So when I look at hip hop, is yeah. it the same thing that really there are different people and different things, or is there a cadre, whether small or large? who literally have their finger on the pulse in the nation about hip-hop. Oh, yeah, man, I listen to all the mixtapes. Does that even exist? Uh, look, there are a few people, you know, uh, that I could point to online who are younger and better than me, who I read, who I feel like, you know, they 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 really, 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 you know, ha- have their eye on things. Um, you know, Alphonse at Pitchfork, you know, writes a weekly rap column. I'm continually, continually blown away by his ability to keep up right his ability to to find these these scenes whether it's you know jersey club or you know these flint guys or you know san jose and go down that rabbit hole you know there's rap websites you know something like passion of the weiss uh where you know there's a new young first-time freelancer every week who's uncovering, uh, you know, a a scene I've never heard of. Um, but I think even those people have to pick their spots, right? You, you know what you like, you follow, you follow a rabbit hole, uh, in, in, in a direction. It leads you, you know, to maybe various scenes that are in dialogue with, with the one you're into. Um, but I don't think there are completists. I think there's just too much music, right? And there's, the thing that's interesting about rap is that in some of these these streaming sites, something like SoundCloud, like it, it's affecting the aesthetic, right? There are there are artists that flock to specific places that have a specific sound, right? And that sound is only growing in this one ecosystem. Um, and and you know that's that's now regenerated a couple times. We had what was referred to as SoundCloud rap in 2017 is not the same thing. We, we we talk about now when when you say SoundCloud rap, um, but but uh, you know the idea of a completist it's 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 just not I just it's just not possible right with the with the amount of stuff coming out. Okay, for the uninitiated, define the difference in status between Atlanta, New York, and LA rap or any other scene that I might have overlooked. So New York right has come back around actually new york is the birthplace of hip-hop you know very much the initial arbiter of you know authenticity of lyricism of of beat making uh you know the 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 legacy is here um and and then for the past you know two and a half three decades it's been what happened to new york rap who's the next savior of new york rap right you you had a moment you had 50 cent you know you 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 had a moment with pop smoke um and the and the brooklyn drill stuff and actually you know the the drill rap coming out of new york now is very much at the center of things right even even kids in the the deepest undergrounds in atlanta are now making songs that sound like new york drill but of course, New York drill comes from Chicago, comes from London, right? This is a sound that traveled all around the world before New York sort of took it back and put their own spin on it. Um, LA, obviously vibrant through all time, uh, through through the history of hip hop, New York versus LA, the sort of 
you know, the, the, the traditional rivalry of, of nineties rap, you know, are you, do you like Biggie? Do you like Tupac? Um, you know, a, a huge Renaissance, um, in, in recent years, you think of someone like Kendrick Lamar, one of, you know, one of the biggest stars of our era, um, and, and a ton of people under him, you know, someone, someone like Draco, the ruler really was putting LA on the map again before, before he was killed, uh, a couple years ago. Um, the thing that's amazing now is that it's not just Atlanta, New York, Chicago, Detroit, the Bay area, right. Uh, Memphis, the sort of traditional hip hop strongholds. Like you have scenes in tiny towns in Florida, you have, you know, scenes in North Carolina, a place that was notoriously uh, barren with, with uh, of, of stars. Um, you know, Arkansas, you can find a hip hop scene. Like the 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 proliferation of of regional hip hop right now, and places doing original, amazing, extremely distinct things. Milwaukee, you know, places that have never traditionally been in the conversation are now as vibrant as anywhere else. I think the reason you continue to hear about New York, LA, Atlanta, to a lesser extent, Chicago, maybe, you know, New Orleans, Memphis is that there's an infrastructure there. Right. And that's, that's the other thing that, you know, the, the book really tries to, the argument I tried to make in the book is that the explosion of Atlanta in the streaming era was really prepared for in the nineties. Right. When, Places when labels like LA uh, La Face, LA Reads La Face, uh, Babyface, So So Deaf, Jermaine Dupree, Outcasts, and and the Dungeon Family, you know, when, when they were opening studios, they were bringing the record business to them, and that lays the groundwork, right, for for there to be places for these kids to go to to record music and and make videos and meet executives, and it's still not New York or LA where the where the majors are based, but compared to a lot of these smaller regional scenes which you know don't end up breaking through on a national level unless you're really paying attention a lot of that is because because of the physical infrastructure right whether it's venues studios clubs strip clubs as we discussed um so i think there's music coming out of all out of all of these all of these towns all of these these little crevices um but not all of it is reaching the radio This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, used to be we had a new scene prior to the internet uh, every three to five years. So have we run, even though everyone's making music, are we running out of a highway on hip hop and something else will come in? Or is there really so much innovation, there's miles to go? I think people have been, you know, uh, predicting the end of hip hop's reign for <laughs> 25 years now, right? That, that it was, it's always almost about to end. Um, but, you know, I think we've seen the slow, sad death of rock, <laughs> right? Like, I don't, I don't know about you, but like, it's just so hard for me to imagine a zeitgeist capturing, chart topping rock band that's four white guys playing analog instruments. Uh, you know, I, so look it had a good run i think hip-hop has proven to be more adaptable um at least in recent years uh you know i think when you think of people who are succeeding in pop or or rock or whatever they're often drawing from a, a rap toolkit right they're they're borrowing whether it's uh you know trap hi-hats and drums or the release schedule right the sort of more is more the morgan wallens of the world putting out 30 track deluxe albums that that comes from rap music you know what i mean uh not to mention his 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 sound uh in in places um so i think you know it's been it's been picked over for parts um but it's extremely extremely resilient um and i think a lot of that is is about where it comes from right like it comes from people who who are struggling right the basis of hip-hop is is in economic despair right uh and and it comes from necessity in, in in a lot of places and and in a lot of cases um so i think like you can never you can never count it out because it's always it's always regenerating because people need it so how'd you get your job at the new york times you know i started out writing about music when i was a teenager because it was a thing i knew about right so i think a, a lot of people default to music writing when they when they first start because it's Thing that they're into the most um you feel like you have some ownership and expertise um over it but i very quickly realized i didn't want to be a critic um and that 
you know, I, I grew up in the sort of blog era, MP3 blogs, Pitchfork, you know, the proliferation of music criticism online. And I was like, whoa, like this seems unforgiving, right? Like all these people are writing so many words all the time with, you know, very little return. <laughs> um, all the magazines that I grew up with were dying um, as, as they still are. Um, and I very quickly decided, you know, I should learn if I'm going to write, I should learn how to report. Um, I should learn a practical skill within this. I'm not a critic, um, even though I have a lot of opinions. Uh, so I stopped writing about music. Basically, I, I learned how to report. Um, I was a blogger. I was a news blogger for many years. I worked at the Village Voice. I worked at New York Magazine. Well, a little bit slower. You left Florida. You went to college where? Sure. I moved to New York. Uh, I went to NYU. To what degree did NYU uh, push you forward in your career? Or it was four years you were just going to college. Oh, no. I mean, I always tell people, like, I would not have the job that I have, especially uh, when I got it. You know, I was still in my 20s. I would not have that opportunity without having got the head start of living in New York uh, beginning when I was 18. You know, I a lot of people moved to New York to try to make it in whatever field after college, and I was here first. <laughs> um, so for me, NYU was a very, very, very expensive uh path to living in the city and having internships and you know i i took on a lot of student loans and you know was fortunate enough that my, my parents could help me out um but i was i was working from right when i got here right i was writing for free magazines around the city um websites the early some of the earliest music reporting i did was for an australian website uh, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, I wrote for tiny mixtapes for free. You know, I, I, I was, I, I had a blog spot. Um, I had a Tumblr. I was just trying to practice basically. Um, and, and as I was finishing school is when I decided, you know, music writing seems like a very, very, very unforgiving space. And that's when I branched out. Did you study journalism at NYU? I did. I studied journalism undergrad, although I did like a media criticism track. So I was more reading Adorno than I was uh, out on the street, like beat reporting. Okay. And was that the end of your education or did you get a master's or anything? No, that was the end of my education. I was, you know, as I said, I was working throughout all of undergrad as much as I could. I was starting to get paid here and there for freelancing uh, online mostly. Um, and, you know, I, I, I figured I would learn more and not rack up any more student debt uh, just doing it as opposed to, to going to grad school. So you graduate from NYU and the next step is? Graduated into a recession, uh, you know, was n not a great time to, to try to be in journalism. Uh, you know, this was, this was the dark days, uh, especially for, for print media uh, as the internet was taking over and they hadn't really figured out what to do yet. Uh, but I was really good at being online. I could, you know, write fast. I could spot trends. I, I, I knew it was, you know, going to go whatever proto viral. Um, I, and I really marketed myself as a sort of next generation, uh, internet journalist, you know, I could get on Facebook and find somebody, you know, quicker than, you know, a, a, a reporter who was not native to those spaces. Um, and so I, I, I tried to really, use that right and it was also a real time of like democratization among writers right like twitter was starting 
I was on Twitter very early. Um, Tumblr, like I said, Blogspot. This was a way for me to like interface with writers who I admired uh, in a in a pretty direct way, right? Like you could reblog them, you could retweet them, you could add commentary, you could chime in, you know. So I was, you know, I was annoying. I was like, I was in the face of people <laughs> um, who I think, you know, I, I looked up to or whose careers I wanted, um, and. And yeah, it was a, it was it was like a, a much more innocent time. Uh, I think online, um, the 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 pool felt smaller. Um, so I, I made some headway that way. Um, and then, like I said, I became a blogger. Right? People needed content for their websites, so I was writing eight to ten posts a day um, for the Village Voice. First on the weekends while I had a day job. Um, then, then as a full-time news blogger, um, you know, what covering was, Metro stories. What was your day job? I worked at life.com. So life.com was a partnership with Getty images. It was what remained of, uh, life magazine. And I ran the homepage photo carousel. So I would, you know, with the help of an editor, pick seven to 10 photos that represented the news of the day, something from the archives for an anniversary, something from a war or tragedy abroad, something more lighthearted. And then I would write a, you know, 200 word caption for it. Um, So I was running the homepage of life.com, which I don't know if anybody, any, I don't know if anybody was visiting life.com, but we were updating the homepage every day. Um, And then, and then on the weekends I was uh, Saturday and Sunday, I had control of the Village Voice website for whatever reason, because <laughs> um, they needed content, you know, they needed traffic. So um, that's when I started, you know, I wrote a little bit about media, I wrote about politics, I wrote about crime, metro stories, um, pop culture. Sometimes they would give me the keys to the music blog as well. Um, so I would keep up with that a little bit. Um, and yeah, I was just writing a lot. I was learning how to how to write quickly, how to write cleanly, how to pick up the phone sometimes, how to make a little joke, you know, you know, uh, aggregation was less dry back then. It was about sort of like adding voice. Um, so I was trying to develop, develop that way. Um, and I just got a lot of reps in, you know, I was just, I was meeting people. I was making waves when I could, I was making fun of the New York times for not printing curse words from the village voice website, you know, just, just, just being pesky, um, and working my way up from there. Um, so after the voice, uh, I did this, a similar thing at New York magazine. I worked for their daily intelligence or blog, uh, as a news blogger, you know, school shootings, terrorist attacks, covered Benghazi, you know, covered media, covered the New York Times, covered Condé Nast, covered internet culture, just a real grab bag of stuff. And I wasn't doing a ton of culture reporting, but I always had my eye on that. And when I first started contributing here and there for the magazine, um, I would, you know, I did a, a piece about Angie Martinez, a New York radio figure. You know, I had, I, I still had sort of one eye on music and culture um because i knew that was my main interest even though i was on the news side of things um but i think that ultimately being functional in both worlds uh is is what allowed me to to get my job at the times right because when when the times is looking for a music reporter they're looking for a reporter first and foremost right anybody has can have an opinion about music um we have no shortage of music critics uh online amateur and professional um 
But I think the fact that I, I knew how to do a public record search, I knew how to pick up the phone, I knew how to like get on the street and, and inter- interview someone, how to track someone down, um, how, to, how to cover breaking news, all of that uh, really came into play. So a lot of your working career was not actually music focused. You've done this, Correct. you've written this book. There are people like John Perellis who've continued to do it their whole lives. And at the times, what do you see going forward and what would you dream would go forward? I've gone back and forth on this a lot because I feel like, you know, December will be eight years for me on the music beat at the times. On one hand, I saw the book as potentially like a capstone to my time on the beat. You know, I think I could cover other things. I could write about other other stuff. I don't know how many more Grammy Awards I have in me. I don't know how many more uh, Rockstar obituaries or Beyonce album cycles. You know, there's something about the music world that, you know, as you well know, it's very cyclical. Uh, you're covering the same thing every 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 year, every few years. Um, so part of me saw the book as like a capstone project um, to my time on the beat. And at the same time, like, I feel like I'm, I know the music world better than I have. You know, <laughs> the thing about, about being a beat reporter is you you accrue knowledge you you gain sources you you get how things work you can see things before they happen you know the patterns um so you know i I think it's all up in the air um i i love the team that i work with um karen gans the music editor john perellis who we've mentioned chief pop critic john caramonica you know uh the other pop critic has been a huge mentor friend champion of me since i was very young uh, helped bring me in here at the Times. Uh, ben Cesario who covers the music business for us. Came came over from the business section. Works with us in arts now. Um, we have a very 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 tight and I think you know pretty thorough team for for how few of us there are. Um, and I, I I love working with them on a day to day basis. Um, but uh, the the short answer is I don't I don't know. I think you know. Times likes for their reporters to move around, but they also like for you to have expertise. So uh, I've, I've gained some expertise on this beat, uh, and I don't know how much longer I'm going to use it, but hopefully, hopefully a little while longer at least. Okay, the New York Times itself. A, you have the vilification, denigration from the right of the New York Times become a pejorative. Ironically, they use the New York Times for all their factual news. Okay, <laughs> of course. You, you know, if you tune in, Fox are always saying, getting all the news. They don't do any reporting. They get it from the New York Times. So on one level, <laughs> the New York Times. You said it, not me. It's fact. You know, New York Times sets the agenda for America, brings up the issues. But there's the issue of the right-wing backlash. And there's also concomitantly a smaller footprint. Used to be if the New York Times weighed in on something like hip-hop music, everybody interested in that would read that article. And it's not only the New York Times, you know, in Los Angeles, it's even worse. It was in the LA Times. Everybody saw it. Now people in LA, most people don't see it. So (laughs) what is your experience working for the New York Times? You said it opens doors in Atlanta. Is it generally a good thing or a bad thing? And how do you feel writing articles in terms of their impact? You feel like you have a big footprint. You wish you had a larger footprint. What's going on all there? I still think the platform is unparalleled, right? It's still the New York Times. Even people who don't read the New York Times know what the New York Times is. They respect it. 
you know, there are people in Atlanta who only know me as the New York Times, you know, oh, it's New York Times is here, you know. Uh, I think as far as a brand name, like it's just in, in the news business, like it doesn't, you know, it, there's, there's, there's few other places at this level. Um, you know, do I wish more people saw some of my stories, especially my more obscure culture stories, my non-Beyonce Taylor Swift coverage? Sure. But I think we can still move the needle. And I think, you know, one thing I really love about our team is that we don't just cover the big stuff. We really do follow stories, news, passions, subculture. We break artists. We often do first interviews that people have ever done. You know, uh, I wrote a big feature about a you know a young woman named Ethel Kane uh, recently. She you know was living in small town Alabama, putting out her first album. You know, people came up to me at the show and said, "I learned about this from the New York Times." You know, like that. I think I think we can still have that impact. Uh, we just have to pick our spots because we have such a small staff. Um, you know, especially in, in music, uh, there's so much happening at all times. We can't cover everything. I think, you know, and, and this goes for the paper in general, but I think like we often make as much of a point, uh, in what we don't cover as, as in what we do. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an expert driven section you know, very critic heavy, the art section, movie critics, art critics, classical critics, pop critics. Like I think, you know, we're still hopefully top of the heap, uh, in a lot of ways and, and can set the agenda. You know, you think of something like Broadway, obviously not, not a lot of people setting that agenda more than the times. Um, you know, I think, I think our, our, our culture covers coverage is strong across the board. Um, but look, of course, like the fragmentation of, of media has, has affected us all. And, you know, if you, you put into Google, uh, any topic of the day, you're going to find dozens and dozens and dozens of SEO garbage. Um, but I think you'll probably still most of the time find the best or the definitive or even the first story, uh, from us. Okay, we've been talking to, or I've been talking to Joe Coscarelli, has a new book, Rap Capital, an Atlanta story. Even if you think you're not interested in hip-hop or don't know anything, it is very insightful in terms of what is the genesis of this music, the people who are making it, the people who are marketing it. So thanks for taking the time to talk to me and my audience here, Joe. It's been great. I really, really, really appreciate it. Uh, you, you know, I, you gave the book such a close read and, and in a lot of ways, you're my ideal reader. I didn't want this to be a book for uh, rap aficionados, for super fans. You know, I wanted, I wanted to explain this culture in a human way uh, and in a way that sort of transcended people who would think they would read a book about uh, rap music. So thank you so much for, for your time. Well, you certainly succeeded. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.